1: Your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest. And joining me today is my good friend and co hosts plural, Brian Fry from Spokane, Washington. How you
0: doing, sir? I am doing well, Russ. How are you doing this evening?
1: I'm doing great because also joining us from right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Mr. Nathan Lutz. How are you doing, sir? I am excited to talk about one of my favorite movies ever today. All right. It is, it is now come the time to live long and to prosper. We have, we're doing our first Star Trek movie, and let's talk about this. When did you first come to Star Trek? Brian, tell us first.
0: Uh, my dad was a big Star Trek watcher growing up. I want to say I got into it right around Wolf 359 Next Generation is my first real memory of Star Trek.
2: Wow, prime moment. Now, he was a
0: big original series guy, but I, that's the first memory I have of Star Trek. It, it'll actually end up being my uh, change one thing and one of the cruxes of my issues with Star Trek over the years um based on that's that was my introduction so you'll you'll hear more about this later
1: interesting yeah that's a good tease now nathan what was your introduction to star wars sorry ha nathan what was your introduction to
2: star trek russell you have just invited the ire of vast screaming hordes with me at their head so uh Speak not such words.
1: I have to keep that in now. I was just going to cut out my, my, uh, my
2: flub, but uh, I, c- you, you I can't be- let that stand. That is, that is too unforgivable. The uh, introduction to Star Trek for me was that my parents had several VHS copies of various episodes of the original series in the movie closet, and they were some highlights. And weirdly, for a group of people who have a collection of maybe only 10 episodes, also some incredible clunkers. So I suspect that they were picked up at a yard sale somewhere, and someone had the highs of things like Journey to Babel or City on the Edge of Forever, and they had the lows of Plato's stepchildren. So I don't know how those two things wind up in your favorites bin, but uh... These apparently did.
0: Let me, let me jump in real quick on this. So can we say maybe to a certain degree that Star Trek, given the fact that you have like some, some really epic winners as episodes and then some that aren't so great. Didn't that kind of in itself spawn a genre of like, you've got to have a silly episode every once in a while, even though they may not have meant it. Cause I feel like Chris Carter tossed in like a silly episode of X-Files once a season and it almost seemed like a nod to Star Trek.
1: Oh, you think that's where
2: that came from, huh? Star Trek had, you know, more than one silly episode a season, I would say.
0: I don't, I don't, I don't think they meant it. I, I, I'm just saying that I feel like other shows did it as a, we know you didn't mean to do this, but it was kind of funny and bad, so we'll do it too. So I'm the newest
1: one to Star Trek here. I did not pick up any Star Trek movies until I was in late high school and i was a huge star wars fan and it was one of those things where some of the new next generation movies had come out and the previews were like that's interesting but i was always kind of like that's a lot of stuff to get into and i'm overwhelmed and you know you go to the radio rental store and you're just like there's a lot here and i'm not i don't know that i can get into this like this is this is a well i don't know how to get into and um uh one of the things, if I finally picked up the first one and I started at the very beginning, and it did not do it for me. I'm not going to lie. I was like, wow, that was not something I need to continue with. And I didn't watch another one for probably like five years or so. So when I was in college, I watched the second one, Wrath of Khan, which everyone was like, this is like an amazing science fiction pinnacle. This is the top of the mountain. And I, I said, it's better. There's no doubt about it. But I, um, I wasn't wowed necessarily to the point of just like, man, I'm... I'm salivating for more and more and more. Give this to me. And so perhaps through knowing uh, Nathan and another friend of mine, Ben, at work who's been on the show, done science fiction episodes with us i started picking them up and doing a few more of them I did three four five and today was my first time doing the sixth one for uh, this so um I gotta say it's one of those things where I feel like the whole gets more enjoyable as you ingest more so it, it's i don't know if that's weird or not but like it's like if you're eating like mm, I don't know cream peas or something like that like this first bite is like I don't know how much of this I need and then you like eat another bite of it and you're like Mm, okay. And then, like, you know, after three or four bites, she's like, okay, we're eating cream peas now. It's fine.
2: I think that that is a totally fair way to describe these movies. It's interesting to me looking back at these, especially rewatching it now, knowing that you are going to watch it through eyes that didn't know half of the references that are being made. I mean, this is a movie with a lot of references, which are in over my just, just the intonation that people are using when they're saying lines the tiniest little tick of Spock's eyebrows is something that just immediately calls back to Leonard Nimoy performing in the original series and that sort of thing. Wow! And it's it's interesting to realize how much of that is in there and how much it makes me love it more and how much it makes me think that this director, Nicholas Meyer, just did a brilliant job of making something that is simultaneously a fanboy's view of Star Trek. I mean, it really, really captures a lot of those things, but also elevates the material to something more at the same time, which is, is kind of great. And
1: so I will be your casual Star Trekker. And Nathan and Brian will come at this with a lot more experience and a lot more under their belt. So um, if you're the casual guy, hop in my car. And if you're the hardcore fans, you're gonna be frustrated with me. So bear with me. I'm, I'm 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 here to have i'm here to help <laughs> you guys have a fun time as best as i can so uh so who is your favorite star trek character
2: nathan you know there's this huge debate who's the best star trek captain and i'm here to say it's janeway actually i've vacillated on this a lot because deep space nine is my favorite series and i love cisco a lot oh thank and- god Voyager is really not my favorite of the series. It has its highs, but you know what? Rewatching it recently, Janeway is so good in, in being the captain of the ship that's in the middle of nowhere and has some of the greatest lines and reads of things that are something that, you know, I respect Picard, he's great, Cisco's always fun to watch, but Janeway, she has my heart. Those are all names, and they don't register
1: with me. Brian, are those good answers?
0: No, it's excellent. So one thing I've always respected about Star Trek, and this is probably something that will uh, give backlash in some way. I've always walked both sides of the aisle. Um, I am a fan of Star Wars. I'm a fan of Star Trek. I salivated at the opportunity for J.J. Abrams to direct both because i felt like finally there was something where you could reach across the aisle shake hands
1: too much power for one nerd to have
0: well well there were some problems (laughs) that that happened in in along the way
1: so brian who's your favorite star trek character
0: oh cisco hands down i i i'm such a ds9
2: fan it's insane Okay. Cisco is utterly amazing in pretty much every, everything about his character.
0: I can't get over how much I liked deep space nine as a series. Um, I, it came out before Voyager. So it it was really the first star Trek that embraced continuity of episodes. Like as a, as a more full time thing, like where everything wasn't just a one-off that every once in a while, it'll come back to a, a main line. But Um, I, I jumped all over that when Voyager came out and embraced it even further. And I was down with that too. But yeah, Cisco, Ben Cisco, number one captain.
1: All right. And my casual answer is I like Scotty.
2: As a captain? No. It's just my favorite Star Trek character. (laughs) I mean, Scotty single-handedly did during... I think he was a captain of that ship when they find him in TNG. He did sort of single-handedly save himself and one crewman with the amazing transporter trick. So, uh, I mean, he's a pretty and, and good they, captain. they do give him a,
1: they give him a nod. I'm not saying who's your favorite captain. That's not the question. It's who's your favorite Star Trek character. And that's why. I, so Scotty provides a little bit of comedic relief and, uh, he has a certain disregard for the rules and the wildness of him. And I like how uh, resourceful he is. So, uh. He always makes me happy when he enters the picture. So I want, him, I want him on screen more. I'm always frustrated he's not. Today, Nathan, go ahead and f- officially introduce it to us. What is our movie
2: today? Today we're watching the second Nicholas Meyer Star Trek movie. This is Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Star Trek
1: does a good colon in there. They always give you a lot after that colon. I, I appreciate that.
2: Shakespeare makes an excellent post-colon.
1: Yeah. You know, our listeners probably have heard this enough. uh, I like, I like a movie with a colon in it. You know, like, I just, it's, it's, tell me more about the movie, please, in the title. You know, the worst, the worst name you can do for a movie is something like John Carter. Just like, that tells me nothing about the movie. I know, I know the character in it. This does not help me. So, Star Trek The Undiscovered Country comes out in 1991. Its budget is $27 million. It grosses $74.8 million, so that's a nice return. It finishes at 15th on the box office that year. That's pretty strong. It comes in just behind Backdraft, and if you want to hear a podcast on Backdraft with a certain Mr. Brian Fry on the podcast with me, uh, Backdraft was episode 50 where we covered that, so check that out. And number 16 coming in behind... Undiscovered Country here is Prince of Tides. If you're wondering what the number one movie was from 1991, that would be Terminator 2, Judgment Day. And Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, gets a rating of 7.2 on IMDb. And the critics of Rotten Tomatoes give it an 82%. They're pretty keen on it, and the audience score is right there with them at 83%. This movie actually gets some Academy Award interest. It gets nominated for two Academy Awards, Sound Effects Editing and Makeup. It's a Saturn Award winner for Best Science Fiction Film and a Saturn Award nominee for Best Writing. And it actually won the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. So, obviously you guys are well-versed with Star Trek. I'm going to take it you both have seen this before, but take us back to the first time you've seen it. What's your journey with this over the years? How have you come back to it? And how has it changed as you've gotten older? And what it's like to return to it now? I'm going to throw this to you first, Brian.
0: I probably watched... All of the Star Trek movies in sequential order, basically, whenever they were available, this became kind of a 007 Days of Bond kind of thing, wherever they were on, I watched them. I can't say exactly when I saw this specific one, because it was a little haphazard. I don't know if you've ever tried to watch this stuff on uh, cable television, especially if you're some of our younger viewers, where uh, On Demand wasn't really an option But uh, I didn't own any of these until much, much later in life. It it is very hit and miss, Uh, these early movies. Some of them are better than others. Specifically this one, though. Like,
1: what's your journey with this one? Yeah.
0: Well, uh, this one's better. I think this is my favorite. I actually think this is better than Khan. Just because there's there's a darker tint to it. And I really appreciated that. So uh, my journey with it is basically that that I saw it. I enjoyed it. I think I earmarked it as the most rewatchable of the bunch. And then when this came up for podcast, I was like, oh, I'm all in.
1: So interesting. So it's holding up for you really well. It sounds like it's aging for you better than as it's as it's going over the years for you.
0: I actually appreciated Shatner more and more as I like watched his career go on. I know he gets a lot of uh, jokes, but I, I really think that that given aged Shatner in this, like, I feel like he, he puts on a a good show for this.
1: Sure. Now, Nathan, I'm gonna throw this to you. What's your, what's your experience with the Undiscovered Country?
2: I also did not actually grow up with the Star Trek movies themselves. In fact, I, while growing up with the original series, I didn't actually get into anything other than that until I started in college having a Netflix account of my own and sort of branched out and discovered the rest of them and this was one that i had the opportunity to jump in and really enjoyed it was a really fun time that whenever i come back and watch it it seems like i see more of what it's referencing what it's pulling from and it feels more mature as something that, while it really is leaning on a lot of the the stereotypes and archetypes of Star Trek: The Original Series, in a lot of ways, it's playing with them in a really in a really effective way that gets a lot out of it.
1: And as I mentioned before, this is my first time with this, so I had no background with it, and I got to say I really enjoyed this. I think it's my second favorite of the series, uh, so I'm close to agreeing with Brian, and I do also put it ahead of Khan. Bit blasphemous here to do so, but I actually have this uh, ranked number two behind Star Trek IV: The Journey Home, which thea uh, whales and stuff. I just I loved how funny that one was. That is no surprise to me. So this is this is high ranking for me too, and uh, you guys are totally right. This this series has been a total roller coaster. Like I'm in and I'm out and I'm in, and this this one I'm way in on, and it's, it went over really well for me. So. Uh, and I could see where you would say this is one of the best to rewatch, Brian. I, I could totally see that. Uh, and as we proceed, there will be spoilers that lie ahead. So if you haven't seen Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and if we haven't lost you yet, uh, definitely uh, hang in there and we'll be back after these messages.
2: Like you. What happens when two modern film
0: fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. All right, we're back.
1: And this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. Nathan, for those who have not
2: seen Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, could you give people a refresher? After years spent at war with the Klingons, and after the recent death of his son at their hands, Captain James Tiberius Kirk is sent on one last mission, to make peace with his old enemy. With Kronos reeling from a disaster of planetary proportions, the Enterprise crew race to make the diplomatic contact before honor-minded Klingons decide to go out fighting in one last futile war with the Federation. But the night after a fraught dinner with Klingon diplomats, the Enterprise appears to launch a torpedo, leaving the Klingon flagship defenseless while a team of assassins in Federation suits murder their way to the Klingon High Chancellor. Bewildered, but determined to follow through on their mission, Kirk and McCoy allow themselves to be arrested to prevent the outbreak of war. While they suffer a political trial and a harsh imprisonment, Spock, Chekhov, Scotty, and Uhura follow a trail of breadcrumbs which lead them to discover the truth. The torpedo was launched from a still-cloaked Klingon warship while two crewmen from the Enterprise carried out the assassination at the direction of Spock's protege, Lieutenant Valeris. With a second attempt at a peace conference jeopardized by the conspiracy of Klingons, humans, and Romulans, Kirk calls on newly minted Captain Hikaru Sulu to bring his own ship, the Excelsior, to assist in the coming battle. Slow clap to credits. The day was saved.
1: And he definitely had to announce himself uh, as he saved the president by diving on him. was like, James T. Kirk. Yeah.
0: Quickly, bring our head engineer.
1: (laughs) So, this is... Famous for being the final send off for the original cast and crew. Uh, is it a bit sentimental for you guys?
0: I don't think I've ever really held on to a crew from a Star Trek show. Uh, I think, uh, especially toward the end, some of the later iterations, most of the crews, like you're just happy to see them reach their destination. Especially with, with, with how Cisco's ended up in, in midair. So, obviously. If you've watched Generations, uh, Kirk stuff, yeah, it gets a little weird. But no, I don't feel like I've ever held on to any individual member as a I need to see this end or I'm sorry to see this end because it's not the end. It's never been the end. I don't think it'll ever be the end.
1: OK, but to your point, they already had aired The Next Generation on TV and it had it had been going while this was happening. So I think it's interesting that there's an era overlap here. So Nathan, what about you? Is this uh is parting sweet sorrow for you? Parting
2: is such sweet sorrow. Haven't you heard the chimes at midnight, Captain? Uh this is a movie that I think if I weren't and I'm really curious to hear what your take on this is, because especially watching it this time, knowing that you are going to be watching it, I really saw areas of this movie that could be perceived as self-congratulatory and overly long-winded about how they present some of these things, and I gotta say, as someone who does have that total nostalgia for the original cast and the original series like this, I absolutely will accept all of what they gave to that, because this movie sort of earns it for me by really being a summation of everything that they've been putting together for a long time. It somehow manages to be something that Crystallizes Kirk's whole relationship with the Klingons into a personal arc and make that into a movie. And that's cool to me. And the idea that by the end of the movie, he's made some sort of a change this way earns this movie a a lot of lenience from me on feeling like it's being overly self congratulatory. Was the slow clap at the end a little bit much? Yeah, but it's fun. And this cast has earned it after six movies and three seasons of TV. I think it was my first slow clap.
0: Wow. Well, was there a slow clap before this? I, I feel like it's my first remembered slow clap.
1: I I never kept track of my first slow clap, so that's interesting. I just know there are many of them. I feel like cool runnings cool runnings would have been before this, right? No, think. this isn't this is this is before that, yeah.
0: I, I'm not sure and you could correct me probably easily with more knowledge. Oh I'm sure we're about to get corrected so fast. <laughs> but but I think this might have been my first recollection of a slow clap. That's fair, especially with how awkward that one race is. Like, <laughs> now I know you guys can't see this because it's a podcast, but it's the one dude at the very end whose arms are like completely extended in front of his body doing the slow clap, and you're like, and there's that. Yeah,
1: I think this is a I think this is an appropriate finish. What they've done, it's undeniable. These people have been working, adding these characters through multiple decades and through multiple iterations of the show. They've touched so many people, and even as a casual fan, you know how much it means to people. And yeah, I mean, it's it it is kind of sentimental. It's the passage of time. You see that they are older, but they love their roles and they love each other, and it's just kind of the it, this is the end of the road. And I feel that way anytime I see whether it be somebody's last version of like when they're bond or whenever the doctor is saying goodbye on doctor who it's just kind of one of those things where it's just like this is it friends goodbye and i i definitely got that vibe off this movie and uh you're gonna win a few nostalgic points with people for that anybody who appreciates what these guys accomplished culturally you know even i, I saw siskel and hebert talking about it and they are not like trekkie fans or trekker fans like they they were big on this and they liked this and they were complimentary of look back on this all they have accomplished so um, this movie's a good good at doing that.
0: Can I also say that that general feeling when it when it comes up, especially from guys like Siskel and Ebert, irritates me because when it came time for Lord of, Lord of the Rings to get its due, they gave it to Return of the King, but it ended up being more of a like an achievement award for doing a trilogy than it was for the movie return of the king so i it it just it bothers me a little bit because a single movie that has achievements loses its effect uh because you know they decide okay this is a fantasy or science fiction movie uh we can brush it aside for now but when it gets the epic level that something like that gets then you have to give it you're forced to give it a nod in some way shape or form even if it's not the best film at the end. And I don't know. That's always irritated me.
1: You're right. They might they might even just be like knowing that there's a very large fan base. Do you think that they're just placating them at that point saying like, "You know what? It's a big deal. We get it and we're going to let you have this as fans," you know? Do you think do you think it's that?
0: I I don't like the idea of like You can say, oh, we're going to let you have this, but at some point in time, you have to realize, like, as a a film viewer, um, the guys who are reviewing these, they have preferences. They do. They have have movies that they like better than others. They have subject matters they like better than others. They may pretend not to, but there's a reason that movies like Endgame uh, for Avengers gross more money than any movie ever and didn't get crap it's because it stayed in theaters forever that's why <laughs> well jurassic park stayed in theaters for over a year so it, it's just one of those things where you can take a dump on whatever you want to take a dump on but the fact of the matter is like there is quality it does subject matter is subjective and when you look at these guys and how they rate films, you're understanding it through their lens of how they rate films. Just like you're listening to us rate films. I mean, there might be something that you absolutely love that I'm trashing on, and you're like, you just don't get it. And that's fair. And that's true. I, maybe I just don't get it. But I do feel like science fiction and fantasy have taken a very bad sad, sidecar to so much over the years that's
1: that's a very fair thing to say and um, pivoting back to this storyline in undiscovered country nathan i liked the cold war parallels in here i thought it was uh, this is good writing like they took a story of their time because you know the, the fall of the wall and stuff was pertinent and that the russians and their country was crumbling, and they had to look to the rest of the world to help pick up the pieces. And in a way, the Klingons have their moon blow up, and they have to turn to Starfleet for help. And I like this. This is, this is good writing.
2: Yeah. There is so much in here that is a pretty overt allegory to that. You know, there's Chernobyl in here. There's. It's funny, in another sci-fi story, they might make more effort to describe more of what's happened as a result of the moon exploding but what they mention instead it's not like oh meteors hit the planet it was oh the air quality or radiation or something simple much more earthbound and mundane is actually what they mention and that really specifically correlates it to the, the real world events that they were really connecting it to that oh yeah these are it's a mining accident. It's a, an issue caused by the kinds of things that the Soviet Union was beginning to be forced to do in order to stay aloft during the whole Cold War. And I think that that made it stronger, even though from a sci-fi aspect, yeah, it maybe doesn't make as much sense. But the f- just underlining what the meaning of that was, I think, gives it a lot of strength.
1: I think it's an insightful thing to do and even here in the 23rd century I guess humans don't totally shed their bigotries and their prejudices and it's interesting to see how the humans are very very spiteful and prejudiced against the Klingons and it's interesting we're about to enter a new era where you know these political rivalries that had people pitted up against each other are are gone but it's hard for the people who were entrenched in these things to To lose that, and I think that's honestly a pretty powerful thing that you know that is that's a reflection of humans, and it also good science fiction writing it challenges you to grow and to to go beyond that. I think it was Brian who mentioned that uh, or maybe it was you, Nathan, who mentioned that Kirk undergoes a transformation through this, and he he becomes a better person and opens his heart. granted, he was challenged by Spock to do so, but um he does, and that's a rewarding thing to see.
2: Yeah, it's something that's really interesting, and like I said, it successfully draws on a lot of pre-established narrative arcs to do it. We saw in the movies that Kirk has lost a son to this. We saw in the show that he's fought the Klingons on numerous occasions, and often often those conflicts are portrayed as something where it really is almost a racial conflict in many ways. So. That this movie figured that out and realized that that was something that they could take as inspiration for the whole arc of this movie, I think is really commendable. I
1: thought it was interesting. Nicholas Mayer, uh, the the director, and uh,
2: um, is it Meyer or Mayer? I used to go to an ice cream shop called Meyer Dairy that was spelled the same way, so that's all I got. Okay. If you're ever in State College, Pennsylvania, great ice cream. So I'm going to
1: say Nicholas Meyer sorry, Meyer. Nicholas Meyer and uh, Leonard Nimoy dispute who came up with the concept for using the film allegory for the fall of Soviet communism both claimed credit for the idea. Honestly, it's a good idea, so I would claim credit for it too if I had any remote part of it, so... uh yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. It's kind of like sometimes uh I've heard like Paul McCartney say like he and John Lennon would argue who wrote the song yesterday. He said we we always were real clear with who wrote all of this stuff, but uh I you know, if John were here today, he'd tell you that uh you know, he wrote yesterday, but I know I did.
0: I have a different take on this, not to you know, di- uh, obviously they said that they modeled the stuff after certain things, but maybe for a Gene Roddenberry perspective. I always looked at the three greatest powers in the Alpha Quadrant as being Greek city-states. I always took the Federation to be the Athenians, uh, the Klingons to be the Spartans, and the uh, Romulans to be uh, basically Thebes. And I really took so much of my Star Trek socio-political piece off of that theory.
2: Nathan, does that hold up at all? I actually don't know too much about the Thebians, and so I can't speak to that too well, except that Spartans and Klingons, they would be friends. They would They would definitely, definitely go together. And the Federation definitely fits with Athens.
1: So maybe it could be both and. Maybe... Maybe you're not wrong, Brian. Maybe that was the bigger framework for it. And this is just this episode, if you will, was taken off of this influence. So you could be right. But this movie ends that federation and Klingon empire. And it's my understanding that beyond here, I'm reading that the two superpowers learn to coexist peacefully. And it's interesting that in a way, it's like saying, like, when the wall comes down, again, challenging us to come together as, as, you know, peacefully coexisting you know, they kind of do that. If I'm not mistaken, there is a Klingon on the crew in the Next Generation group, right?
2: There is an uneasy alliance that forms as a result of this movie slash that was already pre-established by the time this movie came out. But, you know.
1: Yeah. Now, there's a lot of Shakespeare in this. Did you guys get all of that Shakespeare? Or did you like all of that Shakespeare? And what was it all about?
0: It's actually one of my favorite parts of this movie. Uh, I, I really like the uh, the whole thing. It's like, you, you you haven't heard Shakespeare until you hear it in the original Klingon. Um, it's a very dramatic species. And when you take drama in that sort of way, I think you could say that you haven't heard it until you heard it in the original Klingon. Because I'm sure they they make it way, way, way over the top. Uh, anytime there is uh death for family and honor, um, I'm sure that that is, you know, the quintessential thing. I bet, I bet they re- honestly, it should have been one of the bridges between the two people. Like we wrote Shakespeare and you're like, yes, Shakespeare, this. So, um, you know, it, it probably should have, uh, at least felt more like a bridge than a, uh. Uh, a barrier between the two races
1: yeah they had a slew of quotes in there uh the games afoot our reveals now are ended uh you know uh to be or not to be was in there if you prick us do we not bleed
2: a hundred
0: percent of everything christopher yeah i was gonna say everything christopher Plummer said in the last 30 minutes
2: i've turned my camera back on here because uh I'm just gonna have to bring something up to uh, to, to make the some Klingon quotations here.
1: Klingon Hamlet book. He's holding up a book of Star Trek, the Klingon Hamlet.
2: Top pa top da. <laughs> I'm sorry. Hoot, <laughs> flock, I... It's completely unpronounceable. Let, let just to uh, this is something that a bunch of lingual academics, I think, just did as a hoot for fun, and it's kind of ridiculous. This is the Klingon Hamlet by the Klingon. Shakespeare, name spelled S H E X apostrophe P I R, and it is an utterly hilarious thing. It's got the English simplified a little bit on one side, and it's got the completely unpronounceable Klingon. you are making
1: brian such a happy guy he he muted his microphone while he laughed hysterically harder than the microphone can tolerate and now he's beaming with a huge smile on his face and uh, it reminds me of that scene in Step Brothers where they're in the garage and they're like what's your favorite dinosaur velociraptor did we just become best friends (laughs) yep
2: (laughs) do you want to go in the karate and do some martial arts yep I have very few pieces of memorabilia for any fictional universe of any kind, but this was too good to pass up.
1: It's impressive. It's 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 a full real book that he's holding up, so it's amazing.
2: Yes, it details it has it has the actual story, you know, it has all of, of Hamlet, but it also then has an extended dictionary at the back of words that they made up completely in Klingon in order to make this, and the whole backstory of that, and then also a fictional backstory of the history of the Klingon named Shakespeare, and uh it's pretty hilarious. Excellent. So Excellent. it's interesting
1: that uh William Shatner was an understudy to Christopher Plummer in a Shakespeare performance. So they are both uh they're both two notable hamlets and William Shatner began his career in Canada understudying Plummer in a performance of King Lear. So more and more Shakespeare all coming together in this.
0: Oh, big nod to uh Christopher Plummer. He passed recently and and huge fan of his work. Uh I'm glad we're doing this now and just much love.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's go to the cast here a little bit. So obviously we've talked about the original cast and crew in their last hurrah here, but what about our villain, Brian? Do you like Christopher Plummer
0: here? Absolutely. Uh, he He's basically my favorite part of this, this movie. It's the perfect... They ask someone to come into a universe that he had not played in before and to be the antithesis to someone who has done... Basically nothing but play in this universe. Very true. And and that playoff is amazing. I mean, not only a nod to Shatner's ability to, you know, basically shy away from Plummer's intensity, because like you see it from the very beginning, like him stepping off the transporter pad, one warrior to another. Like there's an intensity saying, like, this isn't over yet. You think this is the end? Like he's non-verbally issuing challenge to a guy who doesn't even want to be there diplomatically in the first place. So he's trying to be like, okay. I've been informed to tell you that I'm happy to see you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've been ordered to escort you to Starbase. <laughs> so it's it, it's one of those things where it's like, dude, I would love to fight you. Like we can do this. Hey, Frankie foreshadowing. We're going to have this out. Like. That's gonna happen. So Christopher Plummer was, was perfect for this because I don't have you ever seen in a in, in a movie or any of the Star Trek movies, have you ever seen William Shatner shy back from something the way he did with Plummer? Now I understand he's supposed to, but
1: No, that's not his style normally. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you even see this later when they're imprisoned and uh, he's he's it takes him no time at all to get in a fight in a
0: prison fight.
2: He keeps on running into people who are at least a head taller than him and acts like this is the craziest thing he's ever seen.
0: (laughs) So I I love that casting piece. That is one of the best casting pieces they've ever done.
1: I think this is the best villain of this original first six movies cast crew thing. And yeah, I'm really going to get it from the Star Trek fans, but I I like him better than Ricardo Montalban, to be honest with you. Nathan, is is that too hot of a take?
2: That is not at all too hot of a take. Ricardo Montalban does an incredible job in The Wrath of Khan and... I wouldn't replace him with anybody, but the job that Plummer does here is just unreal. It's uh he he steals the scene whenever he's in camera and you can really tell that this is the very soul of a conservative Klingon warrior. Not only does he want to fight because he thinks he needs to. He wants to fight because it's fun. And he's enjoying what he's doing because he knows that he is picking a fight with somebody to create more fights. And, and fighting's fun. He's loving every moment of it. Yeah, yeah.
1: And he views him as a as a good uh, uh, captain. He he'll, he'll give him his dues as that, but he's looking forward to fighting him too. Like because it's like it's like it's like a challenge that I want to take on, kind of thing. So I, I I see the sport in it as well as the prejudice built up in there too. It's like it's, it's like yeah. I got I to gotta fight him. Yeah. Now, I thought uh, it was interesting. There's a number of things about uh, Valerius's character. This was originally written as to be Savick, uh, which was Spock's trainee from Star Trek to Wrath of Khan, which was Kirstie Alley's character in that. And uh, it, it, the character is also in Star Trek Three, which they recast the character. I actually missed that those were supposed to be the same character. And uh, Roddenberry objected to that the, the character would later come on to double-cross them. Valeris was uh, was this character who was kind of, I wouldn't call it a full out mutiny necessarily, but definitely undercutting the mission for sure. And um, I just thought that was an interesting thing. And I'm glad that they made that change. Also, just casting the character three different times starts to get confusing too.
2: Yeah, I'm actually more on board with the reasoning that it would be unfortunate to have a character recast three times for three movies. Cause I actually love the idea that Savik might turn out to be somebody who double crossed them in the end. And I think if you did that, you would need to have something at the beginning of the movie to explain that. Something something of Savik having a little bit more backstory though.
1: But apparently uh you know, even as far back as Wrath of Khan uh, Meyer wanted Kim Cattrall to play Savic back in 1982 so in a way it was him going back to the well to kind of do what he was thinking at the same time so she initially turned down the role of Valeris thinking she was to play Savick but then she found out it was a new character and she agreed to do it and she got to do it in a lot of things in terms of naming the character helping to like fashion the hairstyle around the ears so Kim Cattrall kind of got into this stuff so she was in, she was pretty enthusiastic to take on this part. I thought she was another interesting layer of complexity that some of these other movies have not had, that character.
2: Yeah, the half Romulan.
1: And um, Whoopi Goldberg, who played the role of Guinan on Star Trek, The Next Generation in 87, wanted to play the role of the Klingon princess in this film. She didn't get to. However, Leonard Nimoy felt that this could have been too distracting to have a well-known star here, so he convinced Meyer not to do this, and uh, he prevented Whoopi from further involvement in this uh, in this movie. But she gets more you get more whoopee later because of that so you save the whoopee for later
0: yeah rightfully so i i her influence on next generation was you know probably top five in terms of characters in star trek um if there, there are a couple of characters in this movie that are interjected later on with questionable segues I I think it's 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 almost better. Not almost, it's definitely better that that she just got held off for next generation.
1: Okay. So you so you're happy that they saved that one for later. Oh, yeah. Fun game here. Guess how much Christian Slater was paid for his tiny little role in this movie. $32,000. $64,000. He was paid $750. Ha. <laughs> <laughs> both, whatever.
0: I should have bet zero. I should
1: have bet zero. <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> yes, Price of Right rules has you both busting on this one. He 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 framed it and still has it framed on his wall to this day. So it is nice when you make so much money that uh, you can just frame seven hundred and fifty dollars on your wall. But uh, he just uh, wanted to be in Star Trek, so it worked out for him. So. That was a fun pop-in. I kind of wish there would be more fans popping in. I would think there would be a slew of Star Trek, celebrity Star Trek fans. And I did see that his little cameo in there was like, ooh, would that be too much to, to do this more?
2: So, But that explains why some random guy was allowed to get into Sulu's, the captain's quarters in the middle of the night. He gave him a stern talking to, though. Did, yeah, you, did you hear what I said? <laughs> I, I liked Captain
1: Sulu. I wanted a spin-off movie with Captain Sulu because I, 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 I liked him running the show. He looked like he was he was the boss. He was on top of it. Like a boss. Yeah. I, he had gained the little disregarding of, uh, of uh, rules from Kurt, like looking the other direction. They're like, do
2: you know where they are? No. <laughs> the guy's like, don't you know? He's like, I said no. He really needs to invent better cup holders, though. Seriously. <laughs> This movie starts off with one of the most egregious, the future has no cup holders or seatbelts scenes that I've ever seen in any movie. (laughs) And uh, the coffee cup jumping off the little side table before the wave even hits the ship is pretty funny. Good
0: point. Yeah. Oh, come on. There's like probably some pre-action going on there. So this movie,
1: it's interesting. So the original idea for this film was to be a prequel titled Star Trek The Academy Years. The reason being, Star Trek Five did not perform that well in the box office. It was critically panned, and Gene Roddenberry and the original cast were vehemently against the idea of rebooting it. So this honestly would have been like more like what they did with Chris Pine and Zoe Saldana, Kurt uh, Urban and Peg and all the others in this new Star Trek. So they almost rebooted it then here and then in 91. There were so many fans writing letters and before the Internet, when it was easy, like writing in letters, uh, demanding the return of the original cast for one more hurrah. And so they got what they wanted. Leonard Nimoy developed the story for this film. And uh, in other circumstances, yeah, he would have directed it as well. But they, Paramount Studios uh, agreed that bringing everybody back um, would have angered Shatner, who was, it was his baby for Star Trek V. And so after that flopped out, they went back and in their minds were playing it safer to go back get Nicholas Meyer, who had done Wrath of Khan. So is it a good idea for you guys to go back to the great Wrath of Khan director here? Does it pay dividends for them?
0: 100%. Yes. At that point, Rathacon was the best Star Trek movie, so yes, coming back around to it, and given their, they had some budget difficulties after the failure of five, um, he really made the most out of what he had for this movie. He made it darker, he made it grittier, and I'll always, you know, hurrah that aspect of film, so... Everything that they did for this movie was really a win, even though he didn't have the resources he had for Khan.
1: Good point. And so if that's a good idea, Nathan, is this a good idea? Walter Koenig wrote an outline for this initially, which did not get used. The Enterprise and crew, except for Spock, were forced to retire, and Spock and his crew are captured by a worm-like race of aliens, and the original crew must reunite to rescue them. And in the end, almost all the original crew die, except for McCoy and Spock. And uh, the idea was rejected by Paramount Studios. So uh, uh, Brian said everything was a good idea. Was it a good idea to not use this bit? Was it a good idea to not use this idea?
2: You know, that sounds exactly like something that would have been a TOS episode script. That would absolutely have been something that fit right in. You know, except for the fact that they all died at the end. But
0: TOS? The original
2: series. Oh, okay. Sorry. Brian, this this plebeian knows nothing
0: (laughs) i'm trying to help out i like i i'm I'm just like i'm a a crutch where i can crutch
2: (laughs) i think we're going to have to force russell to watch like one or two episodes from each star trek show
1: i actually reordered the hosting on this to keep chad off this episode to keep (laughs) uh, to keep a vehement star wars over and star trek sucks guy off this episode so uh, for before people start throwing tomatoes at me and saying say who is this amateur i kept i kept a hater off of here so for for whatever it's worth my my feelings are generally benign towards star Trek. Well, just
0: like no just a re like, like i don't understand the animosity man i mean look
2: why they coexist liked-
0: yeah, why hate one and dislike the other? You're you're sacrificing something also awesome to have that hate. Like that that sort of thing is it's But that's just Chad. That's just
1: Chad. Like he's like he'll go into a Kadoba with a burrito in his hand and come out and it's like, "Oh, so much better than Chipotle." And I'm like, "I just they're both burritos, man. They're they're both
2: all of your daily calories in one burrito right there. I mean I mean they are different. Star Trek and Star Wars are very different animals and I think that they both have very good reasons to exist and do different things really well. They do.
0: They do. I just I, I can't imagine living like seriously in an existence where I'm like, because I like this, I will not like that. Like that's nuts to me. Like, well, ask anybody who's a Pepsi or
1: Coke drinker, and maybe they'll tell you otherwise.
0: I have had both sodas. They are equally too sweet. There you have it. Like, it's (laughs) just, it does not make sense to me to, like, say, I'm going to deny myself one half of the science fiction spectrum of 30 years of greatness just because I'm planting my flag here. That's like, fine. Yeah. The only wrong decision that we will discuss this entire time is picking one or the other. If you're picking one or the other, you're making the wrong decision.
1: Wow. Brian's throwing it down. So, yeah. and But uh, it's interesting. It's, you guys have mentioned Gene Roddenberry. He was... Uh, given a rough cut of the screening of this and to f- to fulfill Roddenberry's role as a creative consultant. Now, Roddenberry was in failing health at the time, and he was bound to a wheelchair and hooked up to an oxygen tank. Not doing well. And despite his frailty, Roddenberry demanded a lot of cuts be made. He really wasn't very happy with it. And uh, Meyer engaged him in a heated argument, and uh, Roddenberry unfortunately died uh, several days, not not because of this, but uh, several days later after the meeting, but that was their parting that was their parting interaction, and Meyer has expressed a lot of deep regrets at his behavior in that meeting, getting passionate over his ideas, no doubt, and not realizing just how sick Roddenberry really was at the time. So Roddenberry died uh, 48 hours after viewing the cut of this film, and uh, you know, at least uh, Meyer dedicated it in his memory at the end of this, which is a no-brainer thing to do, but uh, that's kind of
2: unfortunate Roddenberry wasn't digging where this was going, because
1: I can't see what would have made him so unhappy.
2: There's a lot of information and stories and tales out there about what the Roddenberry vision was and how it evolved over time and the effect it had on different Star Treks that were being made. And it's easy to go into a lot of detail about this idea that later on in his career and shepherding of the Star Trek brand, Gene Roddenberry was developing very strong opinions about what this evolved humanity was supposed to look like and what the future was supposed to hold for people. And it's very interesting that the more that that ideal was being pushed, in a way, the further away it got from The idea of change, the idea that at the beginning of an episode, if you present a character in this way, by the end of the episode, they can be shown to have changed for the better, and for that to have been acceptable for them to have ever been presented in that negative light in the first place. And you see it in the early seasons of The Next Generation, and it makes those seasons, frankly, what they are, which is not the best seasons. And so actually, I can totally see what Gene Roddenberry's vision with that context would have had against this movie. And I think that this approach, this idea that the important thing is to show someone changing over time, the idea that uh, Kirk, who has all the excuses in the world, his, he has this crazy past with the Klingons. He deservingly should have opinions and life experiences about this order that he's been given by his friend Spock, with, of course, the oversight of the Federation, to go make peace with people who he's had real problems with in the past and... You know, in in my opinion, that just makes the fact that he's able to overcome that by the end of the movie, and you know, not a hundred percent, but to some extent, he's come around to the idea that there should be a peace process forward, and that future generations might be able to look at it with more open eyes than he can. I think that those are amazing ideas that are important to be able to show in a movie.
1: That's very interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's
1: it, we're seeing it now with Lucas having sold off, you know, Star Wars, and. Uh, I I can't say that it's all been wonderful, but uh, it's, it's interesting when something goes beyond the hands of the creator. Uh, or similarly, perhaps with more success, uh, the 007 series, Ian Fleming died y- younger than he should have. And unfortunately, they run out of Fleming books, but the character is so beloved, it goes on beyond that. And so you're right. This is an, this is an interesting moment for Star Trek as well as they go beyond their great creator. Now, for the dinner scene, the Klingons, most of the actors refused to eat, and they, uh, they were just, not because the food was bad, but just because they had to be on camera over and over and shoot so many takes and stuff like that, so Nicholas Meyer offered them $20 to eat, uh, to actually eat their food, and Chatner was willing to do it, and he ate his food, and, uh, he actually had to, uh, you know, he ran Meyer down and actually made him pay up later, so, uh, Otherwise, I thought that was a funny directorial tactic of it seems like another one of those $750 paychecks get hung on the wall by these people. It's funny that uh, the director's like, I'll give you $20 if you'll eat that, Um, which is uh, that's like anybody else saying, like, I'll give you these two
2: pennies, William Shatner, if you'll eat that. But I'm sure they all partook of the Romulan ale. Yes. I mean, who doesn't? Literally only one admiral. So one of the other interesting
1: stories is Nichelle Nichols objected to the scene where the crew uh, desperately searches through old uh, printed Klingon translations and dictionaries to speak the language, and she felt like, this would be more than logical that Ahora, the ship's chief communications officer, would know such a main language of their main enemy, and uh, that it would have not have been appropriate for her to struggle so much. However, Nicholas Meyer, the director, bluntly overruled her. He's a forceful guy. I get the drift. It made for a funny scene, if nothing else. But uh, it, it is confusing that your communications expert doesn't have that under her belt. So,
0: oh, they cleared it. They cleared it very well in the. Uh kelvin universe i i I think that that was a mistake like just general mistake for him to say oh she doesn't know but it is something that they basically glossed over later on uh in terms of that starfleet academy like bottom-up piece and i'm fine with that look they've they've patchworked a couple things in star trek over the years and that's a fine one for me
1: I thought on a similar note, McCoy's, uh, you know, the advanced medical practices of the time, he can't operate on the Klingons. Uh, Does that bother you, Nathan? I actually thought, like, I was like, McCoy's a seasoned veteran doctor. I feel like he would at least have
2: a pretty good idea of the anatomy of their enemies. These are two scenes that, as a follower of the original series, I just completely forgive because, especially the medical scene with mccoy he spends basically the entirety of the original series complaining to spock that his anatomy is so weird and he doesn't know what normal for spock is but i'm pretty sure that i'm pretty sure that he's he's putting it on when he's saying that because he's he just enjoys ribbing into spock the entire series and that's just one more way of him doing it is it silly that he would say something like that yeah but it's a callback
0: so my piece on this is going to be that like Spock and McCoy have always been varying angels on Kirk's shoulders. Like they both have their philosophical views that they give him. Uh, I'm not going to say angel and devil because that doesn't make sense, but basically two different perspectives uh, fueling in there. But to say, I don't have, any real understanding of Klingon physiology, you're talking about, in this uh, determination, a Cold War. Like, how many bodies have you been able to examine? How many times has there been an opportunity for you to have the enemy under your microscope? Of course he doesn't know. Okay. All like, right. that's... I mean, this is, this is an interstellar war that has had no real firefights, and the ones that have happened have have happened with both sides retreating in, you know, agony. So tell me, what does he have to go on, really? That's fair. Now, what did you think about the look and feel of this movie? This movie had a much
1: smaller budget, so it's a lot less grand than you would think that they would get for their final hoorah here. So the Enterprise Bridge set was actually brought back from Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. It had been stored outdoors and was damaged Severely by the weather, but they they reconstructed and fixed it back up, and uh, they reused a lot of set pieces in order to save money. And it's interesting they had to shoot on smaller sound stages. It's kind of funny to think of a franchise like Star Trek having to be resourceful, but it sounds like they kind of had to be here. Uh, Nathan, did you think that
2: affected what you were seeing in this movie, or did it feel different? So a couple things about this. First off, the sets may have taken a downgrade. But the visuals, the effects in space, oh my gosh, they're amazing in this movie. They are somehow some of the cleanest, clearest visual effects of ships in space. And most of them are pretty simple. They're mostly just ships flying by, glowing torpedo balls of light flying through space. But there are just so many shots in this movie which are as pretty and prettier than anything in 2001 A Space Odyssey ships. And I think that there's a serious upgrade in how things have been shot over time. And you see it in this movie. And I don't know, there aren't a lot of movies with more modern visual effects that do this aesthetic anymore where the ships are presented cleanly. They're not shadowed all over the place. They're not relying on. They're not trying to create all these atmospheric effects of, oh, what if. The sun was low on the ship, and it's reflecting off it in this perfect way. This, sh- this movie presents the ships simply and beautifully, and it doesn't try for effects that it can't pull off fully in the way that, for example, Star Trek The Wrath of Khan does all the typical Star Trek nebula shots, which look a little bit dated because they're shot in of What about that, what about that, that floating
1: Klingon blood, though? What about that? What about that?
2: So, someone, someone just
0: needs to slap that Jaws guy who did it and said, No.
2: That's not an in-space shot. That's not a, that's <laughs> no. not a ship's in-space no. shot, because obviously when we, when we come back in, there's some, uh, there are definitely some attempts at, for example, an Indiana Jones-esque underground prison space that uh, looks very much like it might have just been the set from some Next Generation episode.
1: I like that, I like that whole prison part of the storyline a ton, actually. I wanted
2: to stay there longer, to be honest with you. I love the storyline. I just don't know about the uh, the Star Trek cave style prison.
1: Interesting. So it's a darker movie. There's a lot more shadows. And then when I say a darker movie, I mean visually darker. Brian meant subject matter darker, didn't you earlier? Like aesthetically, it's it's darker. Like when they're on trial, like they're in a really dark room.
0: Yes and no. Um, I I meant both. Uh, oh, it is a it's a darker new movie based on subject matter because you're dealing with. Race and you're dealing with uh socio-political matters that that really hadn't been broached yet but you also have a real piece where like you have your heroes in a a black point like they're being posted up as i don't want to say over the hill but like they're at the end of the rope like We're, we're trying to end our careers here in a good place. Everyone's happy about it. They're like, Hey, we're retiring. And Spock's like, remember the part where you're retiring? Um, I'm going to have you do something that you hate. So effing much that, uh, you're going to actually have a conversation with me about it after this talk. (laughs) Yeah, very true. (laughs) Uh, surprise shove. It's, it's one of those things where like, it's a dark movie because it's, I think Spock does understand at a very human level that, that Kirk is able to make this transition. You're right. Is it an easy transition? Absolutely not. It's one of those like, I know, dude, you're my best friend and you have some thoughts that I'm not really into. But I'm sure that given this absolutely life defying thing, I'm gonna put you through. You're gonna come through at the end.
1: (laughs) So it's like, so it's like, it's like Brian and I are at the end of our rope, and then I tell you one more thing, Brian. You're gonna have to eat dinner with Jared Leto.
0: No, no, it's gonna be one of those like, if you save Jared Leto at the end of this like, like this like Tower of Hades sort of ordeal, you've not only grown as a person but you're going to be able to go forth as a person later on and, and, and just be better.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And mine would be mine, <laughs> mine, my, my, mine probably would, would have been uh, Kobe Bryant, but uh, I'll never have that opportunity. So
0: um, yeah, but but the, it is, it, it is a darker movie because it, it forces prejudices to the forefront of your characters. And, and, and it's not just Kirk like that that's the four That like that's the it's easy piece, is Kirk it's Ohura it's it's check like literally everyone's like I felt the same yes, way you did like yeah I mean it's not one person in Starfleet that feels this way in fact if if you had brought Kirk into the cabal with uh Admiral Cartwright like he probably would have been like yep I would have liked to have seen
1: like a phone call in the background between somebody like on the phone talking to like Sulu on the other ship, being like,
2: and like have Sulu be like, "You're doing what?" Oh, dude, that sucks.
0: <laughs> I'm just saying that like I I do feel like that that was the heavy piece, and 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 that made the movie darker in its way, and I think Kirk does have that sort of needle to to point toward what's supposed to happen or or what what what's supposed to be good and right. So I'm not trying to take that away from what ends up happening. But the easy piece, the warrior piece is what Kirk is used to. And that's why Plummer's piece was so valuable in this film is that like I see you as the last real death that I can have and that's why the klingon empire has always resonated more for me for the spartans than it is for russia because you have a point where it's like you can you can give me a true valiant death and that's the camaraderie he saw with kirk yeah
1: but uh it's it's a visually darker movie too there's a lot more shadows and low key lighting in this movie too Perhaps complement all those tones of the story that Brian's talking about here. Very true. Uh, some fun stories that were included where I didn't catch this, but the set design of the Excelsior is the same set. And then, like I said, they were being resourceful. They shot all the Excelsior scenes, and then they revamped it and made it into the Enterprise. So uh, it's so funny. And then it became the Voyager set. <laughs> yeah, you, you think Star Trek would have the biggest budget, and it's, it really is a mind blower at the strain that Star Trek five caused on this. I saw Star Trek five a few months ago and I just didn't like, is it the best? No, but I'm having a hard time seeing it, putting the franchise in this pickle. Like I, like I just figured Star Trek fans were so established and entrenched. Can you be a little bit disappointed? Yes. But were we really about to hand the whole thing where like, and like to the point where Paramount wasn't going to invest heavily in this movie. I mean, they made a lot more money than they put into it. It is, it is a little baffling to me that they had to be this resourceful. And by the way, if you go back and look at the movies Star Trek 5 opened up against, I don't have it right in front of me, but it is incredibly aggressive. Like, it had extremely stiff competition. Um, I believe there was an Indiana Jones franchise movie in the mix. Batman, I mean, it, it is a very bad time to go up against these things. Now, you're a Star Trek, you're an established franchise, you should be able to do it. But I mean, go back and look at it. It is not a good summer to be coming out um, with your movie.
0: Well, what I'll say on this is, did you see how long it took Marvel to put, action, to put a real Marvel movie out? Like, DC had been doing it with Superman for several years, and they kept trying, and each Superman movie has its own faults. So it took Marvel blank amount of years to get the, a movie out,
1: I just think technology had to catch up to be able to service that stuff, but I mean...
0: Yes and no, but I, my point is, like, if you mess up even a little bit with science fiction movies and that fandom, it, it's much more fickle than if you fail at a run-of-the-mill, we're not going to do a sequel kind of movie.
1: Yeah, it's fair. It's like, like Die Another Day happened as a Bond fan. Was it the best movie? No. Will I watch it? Yes. In... Dude,
0: that but but that's anchored. You're anchored. You're steeped in years of success. Sure, like, you can have a couple. But of wouldn't fails you say
1: there. that Star Trek was that? Th-
0: no, 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 no. I, I think not. I, I think I think Star Trek was a hit and miss. I, I think it was a very sour stomach franchise. Where, gosh, you gotta you gotta win on this or else it dies. And it's not something the people who were invested in it, Leonard Nimoy, Mayer, like these guys were invested in it. They they wanted to see it live and flourish and go on beyond this and and a failure would just be crippling.
1: Interesting. You guys have helped reframe my focus on that. Okay. No, that's fair. I, I keep I keep sitting there like who is the paramount executive that said, mm, not gonna give these guys money, but thank you for clarifying that. I mean I, I needed that. So This is
2: also a series with an incredible amount of infighting and from the beginning, I mean You always hear stories about the letter-writing campaigns that saved Star Trek from being canceled after season two, but the funny stories that are also true is that there were hilarious stories of actors on the original series who would try to get or individually directed letter-writing campaigns to happen from the audience to try to get their characters to seem more important for the business executives who were deciding which characters were going to get things. There is the competition between William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy for the importances of their roles and the direction and all of these things. And so it's a franchise that really was always struggling. I mean, if you think about it, The Next Generation started off so weakly with its first two seasons that when, oh, did it? when I look back on it, it's amazing to me that they escaped that. Wow. Didn't know that.
0: No, it's, it's, it's really based on Picard's chops that that show oh, continued. Yeah. I mean, he, I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, they casted well for the show. Uh, the I'm not going to, is amazing for that show. Yeah. I, I'm not going to, I'm going to knock any of that, but it really you know, it, it laid on his gumption to continue on, and it's it saved Star Trek,
1: yeah. So, a few fun, fun stories Frankie and Johnny in '91 was being filmed in the same studio area, and that required Al Pacino to have a surprised expression when he opens a door. And director Gary Marshall arranged for William Shatner in Kirk uh, costume and Spock in, in costume to both be on the other side of that door when they opened it up. And uh, the the cut that they get of Pacino opening that door and being surprised in that movie is actually him opening up a door and unannounced having Kirk and Spock in, in full uniform behind there. Pacino being like, huh, <laughs> what kind of drugs am I
0: on? <laughs> <laughs> All the drugs. <laughs>
2: so...
1: Yeah. Another fun uh, story is Christian Slater got to actually wear William Shatner's original trousers from Star Trek II: the Wrath of Khan. So they're reusing all kinds of set pieces in this one. And he uh, he in an interview said it was an honor to get into Shatner's pants. So <laughs>
2: Those uniforms um, need to be brought back. Those are those are my favorite Star Trek uniforms.
1: Uh, speaking of uniforms, Christopher Plummer was originally cast to have had hair, and when they were applying the makeup on for him, uh, he was saying that this just makes me look tougher. Take the hair off. And are you going to tell Christopher Plummer no, especially when he stresses General Chang? I, I wouldn't.
0: I have gone back and reread the lore behind the changes of Klingon anatomy like three times, and I still don't get it.
2: For the non Trekkies out there, this is a story that can only happen in a series that has a fandom as strong as it is and as canon obsessed as Star Trek is. The fact that this is something that was a decision on the spur of the moment in this obscure 60s TV show that was then in the early 2000s retconned as, oh yeah, this was, we intended this story the whole time can only happen in Star Trek.
1: So as we talk about the music of Star Trek VI here, Nathan, what do you think about the music of The Undiscovered Country?
2: This is my favorite Star Trek score.
1: Oh, really? Wow, impressive.
2: Cliff Eidelman, brilliant, brilliant job. First off, I am always extremely happy. In the script, Shakespeare is quoted all the time, but this movie is actually quoting certain other things in addition to the classic Star Trek themes. Um, But this this starts off with a quotation or a modification of a theme by one of my favorite composers, Igor Stravinsky, and his wonderful ballet, The Firebird, which starts off very darkly. And the score to this movie, which is dark and brooding and menacing, but also hopeful and heroic to fit the ideas and themes that are in the script— starts off with sort of an inversion of that foreboding opening melody of Firebird, and it just picks up from there. I love this score. Uh, One of my favorite moments is when... Kirk and McCoy have escaped the prison and they are walking out in the icy tundra on the penal colony and the wind is blowing and there's just this wonderful beautiful score of shimmering strings and this uncertain trumpet that slowly grow into this wonderful score involving sweeping French horn melodies and oh it's the best. It's great. I love it.
0: Brian, anything to add on the music? I don't think I can possibly possibly add anything to that
1: right now i should let you go first (laughs) no that's fair i i I, I
0: hold up my hands and surrender i have nothing to add to that
1: that's why we brought nathan in this year the music (laughs) section of the show got so much better Uh, i appreciate that (laughs) i got nothing Uh, now yeah uh now uh it's time to give out some awards here mvp i'm gonna go right off the bat i think uh, is this a person for plumber sweep
0: Yes, sir. Plumber.
2: No, it's not. No, it's not? Oh, oh, Nathan, who's your MVP? In no other Star Trek movie would I say this, but this is a Shatner MVP for me, actually.
1: Whoa! Really? I thought
2: maybe Nicholas Meyer might come out of the shadows here, so yeah. This is an amazing job by all. This is a movie where you really can't go wrong picking something, picking something out. Is it the amazing effects of all the ships? Is it the Amazing callbacks of so many casts. Is it the amazing direction of some of these shots? But no, in this case, this is, in fact, my favorite appearance of Kirk in anything. His opus. I got to give it to him here.
1: Okay. Yeah. Hey, it's the grand...
2: A uh, walk off here. This is the grand finale for Kirk and he nails it. Yeah.
1: And we gushed over Christopher Plummer earlier. Fry, uh, anything to add to it?
0: No, I, I, I do love Plummer in this. I think he is the, the epitome of the Star Trek villain, the antithesis to Kirk. Um, I, I, I just, I was so excited, especially on a rewatch, like really paying attention in the way I do for the podcast to see his, Pawn off with Kirk, like his 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 back and forth was so good because Kirk is so hamstrung by Spock on making this a political thing and saying, "Hey, you, (laughs) I'm looking at you. I know, I know you're better being. You are a peace loving guy. I want you to be cool with this. I volunteered you for this. Let's be those people." And Kirk's like. I'm really happy to have you here. I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think we can all live together in peaceful co- coexistence. And, and this dude's just like right up in his face as one warrior to another. It's like, yeah, man, we're going to get into this. We're going to fight, and it's going to be awesome. And it does. Look, foreshadowing is awesome. That's great. We're going to we're we're, we're going to do this. This is going to happen.
2: Now best supporting actor, Nathan. The whole cast is amazing. The main cast, the triumvirate, they all do an incredible job of this movie and it would be a little bit silly to bring them up as, you know, e- e- each and all of them are amazing together and they work together perfectly. So I'm going to bring in the person who had to somehow come in and compete with all of them for this. Lieutenant Valeris, who manages to almost out Shatner Shatner at certain certain points at the beginning during the scenes where they're leaving space dock and make faces and... She inserts herself in all these scenes, and just because she's the one new face, you kind of know it's her, she's the conspirator, but she does a fantastic job and brings out a lot of interesting things, which is partially due to the writing, but I think she does a really good job of selling a past relationship with Spock and just being really successful there, so an excellent job. Now,
0: Brian, what
1: about you, best supporting
2: actor?
0: I, I think this makes sense. Like, given what we've talked about, I actually gave Shatner my supporting, uh, not because he's a supporting. What? Not because he's supporting, not because he's a supporting, but I was looking more at it as an MVP versus runner yeah. up. So. He, oh, no. OK. He, I I meant like. he. Well, no, but I mean, I, I, I had to give him a nod for this because his acting in this is that good. Like. I have to give him the second best nod. Like
1: Okay, so say he gets a nod for MVP then. Who would your best supporting be like of the lower like you know,
0: you know, the rest of the Everybody else. Um I think I'd have to go with probably McCoy on this. I, I do like his It's a great choice. I, I do like the the we've been together this long kind of piece that McCoy gives. And I also have to give a, a hats off to how Urban does that later on in his piece, like to show a early yeah, He's great an early kinship between the two of them. It's like, hey, I don't want to agree with like ninety nine percent of what you do, but God, my life was crap before and your life was crap before, and we're just we're 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 mailing this end, man. <laughs> We've all ride so, together, die together. I i don't want to like do a, a fast and the furious on this, but it's one of those like, hey, why on earth would I stop doing this now just because it got hot? Yeah, my best supporting actor is going to be George Takai Asulu. He's changing his role
1: from the uh, go along to get along uh co-pilot or sorry pilot and uh you know to being like i said this man is running a ship and i liked it and i needed an excelsior spinoff movie he's 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 uh he's kicking butt and taking names i like Yeah,
0: earlier it's like why would you want that bucket of bolts
2: (laughs) so uh hidden gem nathan oh my gosh this movie is entirely composed of hidden gems truth this is a movie where there are character cameos from the original series and other Star Trek series just pouring out of the woodwork. The character who plays Odo and is Colonel West in this movie is René Aubergénois, oh, right? Ren- Aubergénois. Uh, yes. René Aubergénois as Colonel West who is Constable Odo in Star Trek Deep Space 9, but he has one of the most unique voices that i think i've ever heard any actor have and it is just a joy to have him trying to explain to the federation president that we can get in get out and have a minimal minimum of casualties it'll be great
0: all right and so brian who's your head and gem so mine is admiral cartwright um admiral cartwright is played by brock peters uh he's uh
2: He's yes. Ben
0: Sisko's father in Deep Space Nine. Uh so he plays uh Joseph Sisko later on in you know, Star Trek lore. But uh he also is a fan of I'm a fan of him also because he's played the voice in so many things. Like he was like a big guy in nineties animated shows like SWAT cats. He was in pirates of dark water. He was in Batman, the animated series. He was, uh, Lucius Fox's character. Um, in Batman the anime se- animated series, so for those of you got, who are you know trying to make the connection, uh, Lucius Fox is Morgan Freeman's character in Dark Knight Rises. So this guy literally did the voice of that character in Batman in the animated series. So this like he does a lot of stuff and he's awesome.
1: That's great. Yeah, and I got to go with Christian Slater and his seven hundred and fifteen dollars he was paid for this squeezing into those Shatner pants.
0: So.
2: Now, best shot, Nathan. There's a shot in this movie which just tells me how much that Meyer was a Star Trek fan, and it's just incredible. It starts off panned behind a bunch of Klingons as they're about to beam off the transporter pad, and once they've beamed off, the shot continues, and it's the entire main cast. Uhura, Chekhov, Scotty, Bones, McCoy, Spock, and Kirk, all right there. And one after the other, they say how tired they are, and the camera slowly pans in, and they all do something that is sort of telling about their character. Something something that you can just see the original series version of their character doing, and slowly it pans in. To the Triumvirate, and you end up with just Kirk, Spock, and McCoy together, and they all express where they are in their headspaces in that movie at that moment, except Spock, who is the last one remaining as they all walk off stage to go get some rest. And Leonard Nimoy makes a facial expression, which is one of so many in this movie that is reacting to things and yet is like visual poetry. It's amazing. I love that shot.
0: Wonderful choice. Yeah, that's a good one. What about you, Brian? I love the part where literally they're about to tell him the entire conspiracy.
1: <laughs> like he
0: had, he had every, he had everything right there, and they beam him off, and he's like, ah, ah, and they beam him off, and he's like, son of a, bitch. like, since you're all about to die anyway why not tell like, you that that literally summed up so many movies right there like we had like you couldn't have waited five more seconds
2: and he didn't tell them <laughs> yeah so I was like, and, of course and it, kirk beams yeah, up and he's so mad I'm, at spock for having uh, not waited of
0: course it works all out
2: in the end <laughs> but man what a great
0: scene like like in a mo- movie that's generally breathed of humor like for the most part bereft of humor like that that shot was so great like i i felt his frustration like oh that's when you show up jackass yeah
2: would you like to go
0: back (laughs) (laughs) absolutely not it's cold so yeah i dude i love that shot
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i'm gonna go with the sentimental route on this one i'm gonna say the final crew looking Straight at the camera, at the console Starship Enterprise, one last time. Music's all composed. They're all posed very much action figure-like, and uh, it's the last image you get of them before
2: they fly off into the sun. Best scene, Nathan? My favorite full scene in this movie is, it's got to be the dinner scene. It's just simultaneously incredibly humorous as you get to see all of the sort of slapsticky bits with the Klingons and food and napkins and things cuz they're all savages and then you get the just amazingly written dinner conversation Spock is doing everything in his power to try to make a bridge here and and Kirk just cannot bring himself to do anything but feel like these Klingons are the very worst enemy that he could possibly have and how dare Spock have brought him on this journey and it's so interesting to see that back and forth where some of the rest of the Enterprise crew, they are willing to try to make at least verbal overtures, and you see Uhura try to make one, and then she trails off as the Klingons reveal their terrible table manners, and Chekhov tries to make one and does the gaffe of using something that is, you know, human rights and gets shouted down for that, but Kirk's part of that is just hilarious, and so it's gotta be the dinner scene. Yes, who's
0: coming to dinner? Now, Brian, scene from you so uh i'm i'm gonna go with the kang quoting shakespeare while firing torpedoes i i i love that piece of this movie because i i'm a huge naval warfare fan um i've read all of the patrick o'brien master and commander books it's it's something that just fascinates me so you have the part where he's he's literally quoting Shakespeare and and ordering them to fire. But <clears throat> you get the part where, you know, they fashion a torpedo it hits them and they're like target that explosion and fire. It's like that's good, but it's not the best. There have been many, many better ones, but it it's that piece that's awesome. Like you have Sure. you have movies like uh Greyhound where he's like turn around we'll hit him broadside you have uh, master and commander where it's it's you know let fly like those those epic moments where they say you know give them a broadside like that that is just awesome and something they've really incorporated with space combat is the naval warfare piece and we don't have that because obviously we don't have spatial warfare in that way yet but i've always enjoyed that they brought that piece into spatial warfare like even with the linear aspect of a shock wave going and you have Sulu saying you know turn into it like that should be 360 degrees not linear <laughs> you know what i mean like you can you can say like eh, okay but it is i, I love that piece of these kind of movies my my favorite
1: scene is going to be when martia helps kirk and mccoy escape the prison camp and they're out in the cold and there's a very real moment where mccoy feels like he's at the end of his line and that's there and then kirk gives him that little spot of hope says i've got a tractor beam on my back they build up a fire and then martia turns on them and um you know it's a setup and she doubles as kirk and you're in this Seemingly campy, fun moment where Kirk's fighting Kirk, and which one's the real Kirk. And uh, I like, I like when Star Trek kind of has a little bit of fun like this. And even in this yeah. good, well-written and serious movie as this, I liked it. It was a fun scene. I love the character of Martia, and um, you know she was she was great. Uh, Iman was the woman who played uh, the character. Awesome. Just this, this was a lot of fun for me. I like that. Like I said, I think I could have used more prison camp at time. That was just, more prison camp. that was
2: all fun stuff. Yeah. More prison, uh, best wardrobe or makeup moment, Nathan. I've alluded to this earlier, but these are my favorite uniforms in all of Star Trek and there's a bunch of reasons for this. One of them, I I just love the feeling that this is a naval ship, that this is naval warfare in space or submarine warfare in space, and that's something that Star Trek has always done really well, and these uniforms capture that in an incredible way. Um, The best moment is actually part of my favorite shot in the movie, and the cool thing for me about these uniforms is that you can open them in a way of expressing how tired or rough your last couple of hours have been, and the ability to do that, McCoy just rips the front of it open and walks off. It's great. It's so expressive, and I'm going to have to award it to do that.
1: <laughs> what about you, Brian? Best wardrobe makeup moment.
0: I've always really appreciated the Klingon wardrobes on all this. I think it's probably the most consistent thing that Star Trek has ever done.
1: Well, they reused all the wardrobe. <laughs> These are all Klingon reused because they didn't have money to do them again. Well, I
0: get that, but at the same time, like they're the the drapy piece that they usually do for the Klingons has been consistent over time, and even if it's just a simple as reusing it, it worked. It worked from the beginning and it worked to the end.
1: And I think they did a great job of making their makeup look that way because they took Kevin McAllister from Home Alone and he dropped an iron on their forehead.
2: <laughs> and man, the costuming on Chancellor Gorkin, pretty spectacular. Oh my. that bone, Dude, cane. that
0: bone cane. Yes. Yeah. Now,
1: my best wardrobe makeup moment's got to go to Martia. The great costume work here, the yellow eyes, my mind went right to uh, the Christmas story.
0: The eyes, the yellow eyes. They don't let girls work down here.
1: Yeah, Uh, but the feather slash hair combination that they put in her hair, I mean, uh, the long coat. Cool, very cool. She's a a very interesting character. I wish we had gotten more of her. Again, more prison. More prison.
2: (laughs) More prison. Mm -hmm. Um, Change one thing, Nathan. Uh, You know, I've praised the visual effects of this movie a lot of times, and one of the things that they do which I, d- I never thought was possible, was yes. that they made the starship Excelsior look okay. The Excelsior is, I think, the ugliest ship design of any vessel in Star Trek. When it shows up in the third Star Trek movie, they're like, Yeah, look at this cool ship, it's so big and awesome and it's got transwarp drive, but it, I, I, I cannot hold with that weird neck design, its proportions are just Are you
1: kinda like the other like Klingon yeah. ships and stuff like that too when you say that? Oh
2: yeah. Oh, I didn't hate it that much, but yeah, you're hard on this. The Excelsior is my least favorite design in Star Trek, and I think that Sulu could have captained a cooler ship.
0: What, what's your favorite uh, ship design?
2: Probably the, uh, the coolest ship for me is the Defiant. The prettiest is the Voyager. <laughs>
0: That's all I needed. Thank you. Brian, change one thing. Every Star Trek anything. I want more space combat. It's it's fine to have the whole piece where it's like, oh, we can't find them and, and we're getting shot up and they're not and now we find them and then we shoot them up and then that's the end of the show i want more space combat i want like that's the reason i was so into ds9 was like i want more space combat give me give me that um way of the warrior ds9 versus klingon armada like give me space combat that's all i want that's <laughs> give me that daily that's what i want
1: remarkably consistent for you you're the guy who fast forwards to the uh braveheart battle truth. scenes and then just watches that and says i'm done truth like <laughs> so, yeah, give yeah. me that's remarkably consistent give me that. yeah brian says give me what i need yeah and what i need is no cgi Klingon on blood it just fair it, it probably looked cool in the, the in the concept art on Very the walls fair. Very but fair. then it didn't it didn't look good in cgi and i wish once they had started doing that meyer had been like you know what guys we tried
2: Maybe we won't do this again in the future, but not now. That might even have occurred to them at the time. But because it was integral to the plot later, I think they were stuck with it. I mean, give me an ooze, give me an oozing blood stain on the
1: floor or something
2: like that. Yeah, they definitely could have tried to shoot this underwater somehow and color correct it. There's, there's things they could have yeah. tried.
1: Yeah, it's CGI just was not... This was not early 90s, even the mid 90s. I just... I'm not... I'm down on this era of CGI and I know it's the painful step that helps pave the way for other things but i don't know not not the way to do it and you know like jurassic park when they did it they did they put a lot of real stuff in the front they shot it to the side they framed things they put real people in it and uh you know this is one of those times when the cgi was on full out display and it was just it's it
2: just wasn't there yet so um best quote Nathan, I just love Kirk's ending speech. It's there there are so many great quotes in this movie, but I very much enjoy some people are afraid of the future and mm, that is good. I, I think yeah, it I feel, I feel up, that a
1: lot as an architect, yeah.
2: <laughs> it it sums up this movie, it sums up a lot of the ideas and concepts that, you know, people who are hesitant to make peace with someone that they think of of as an enemy. Yeah, it might be because they hate them. Yeah, it might be because of something... General in the past, but ultimately it comes down to a- being afraid of what it looks like to live in a future where that war is gone, and realizing that you might have come to depend on that conflict being there. And I think that that sums it up really well.
0: Brian, best quote. I have to agree with a lot of that. I think that <clears throat> someone like Spock, who who really appreciates peace in the way he does,
2: only Nixon could go to China. <laughs> doesn't really understand
0: kirk fully but the quote that i love the most was kang saying we need breathing room earth hitler 1938 (laughs) That was the best damn quote in this entire movie. Like, that was like, snap. Like, this guy understands war. Kirk understands exactly what's happening right now. He understands the opposition on the other side, even though you have peace on the Federation side, you have peace on the Klingon side, and they're trying to understand each other. He understands the war on the other side he understands the peace that has to to counteract that war on the other side too
1: all right yeah
0: my best quote is going to be when
1: disguised as kirk martia fights him and uh earlier they say uh, i can't believe i kissed you and uh You know, Shatner just calmly goes, must have been your lifelong ambition.
2: (laughs) Uh, Oh my gosh. The Martia character, I agree with you, Russell. We need more of her because every, every scene she's in with Kirk is just hilarious
1: recast if you had to
2: recast somebody who would it be and who are you putting in their place nathan this is going to make you guys really angry at me i think that plumber in this movie don't do it don't do it there was an original actor on the original series i want i want kirk's actual rival from the original series to come back and he came back for deep space nine so why couldn't he come back here john Colicos? i want john Colicos as Core to be in that role, he could have done he could have done everything for that just as well, and it would have been fitting to the original series. It'd be great. Mm. Mm. Okay, that hurt.
1: My recast is going to be Kim Cattrall as Valeris, and I want to put somebody a little bit darker in here, a little more mysterious in here. I felt like Kim Cattrall was not what I was looking for in this character, and I do like that that it's not Savick. i I personally like Savick's character and I don't want to not like Savick's character. So, I want Valeris, I want it to be different, but I want it to be darker and I'm thinking Sean Young. She's a little younger but not much and uh, it's about the same age and she would have been doing a kiss before dying around this time. So, uh Brian who's a big Blade Runner fan, uh, might might approve of this or not. So,
2: No,
0: I think I'd be game for that. No, I think uh what really needed to be recast here is probably some of the uh The generals, like the excess to Christopher Plummer. Like, they're all other people who needed to have an issue with this peace alliance. So, like, give me somebody else. Give me a, you know, a dark actor who wants to also chime in. Like, maybe the guy who gets his arm shot off. Give me somebody at least a little bit more credible. So, my recast is...
1: Is this, your, is this your reach to Brian Cox? Yet? No, no, I'm not,
0: I'm not going to say any particular person. Like, just, just, just okay. give me, like, some named person who is with Kang on this. Like, yeah, yeah, we shouldn't do this. Look, they shot my arm off.
1: I thought you were, reach, I thought you were about to reach back in your bin and bring out Brian Cox one more time.
0: Yeah. No, no. <laughs> uh, all right.
1: Well, this is the big moment of the show. I think we're going to get some high marks here judging by how things have gone. Nathan, on a five-star scale, half-star intervals, what would you rate Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country? Can I give it a six? No, it's a five. It's perfectly reasonable to do, and I can tell how much you love it. For, absolutely. Now, Brian, what about you? What are you going to give this movie on a five-star scale? I give
0: it a solid four. Four? What's keeping it from going higher for you? Well, I mean, this is not a a room rocker. This is not a a movie that I think a lot of people are going to appreciate outside of canon and people who like this genre. Um, I don't think that they really crushed the market with how they did the movie. So, I will only allow my uh, positive uh, attitudes to go so far, so 4 is where I will stop it. Okay.
1: Wow. That's. Uh, I was gonna say this is your rating, not not a neutral rating. So that's interesting. So I'm gonna I'm gonna match you and go four here as the casual. So uh, I'm, I guess I'm gonna match you even with your hardcore background on this. So four for me. I just think it's incredibly fun and it's very well written and well performed.
2: Great. Agreed. Agreed.
1: Uh, Nathan, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? I do, Russell. It's wartime. So we're going to do one of these movies. Apocalypse Now from 1979. A U.S. Army officer serving in Vietnam is tasked with assassinating a renegade special forces colonel who sees himself as God. Option two. Born on the 4th of July from 1989. The biography of Ron Kovic. Paralyzed in the Vietnam War, he becomes an anti-war and pro-human rights political activist after feeling the betrayal of the country he fought for. And option three. The Deer Hunter from 1978 an in-depth examination of the ways in which the u.s vietnam war impacts and disrupts the lives of the people in a small industrial town in
2: pennsylvania i'm gonna have to go with the one with a great john williams score this will be born on the fourth of july fourth of july all right tom
1: cruise movie definitely gonna want to see that oliver stone an acclaimed director so look forward to getting into that one next time Thank you guys for coming on the show, and thank you all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you, so subscribe, rate, and review to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a like on Facebook. Follow the show at Twitter at at Movie underscore Retro. We're on Instagram, and email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com, all one word. And producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free, so we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. Any contributions are much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for the listeners. As always, thank you for listening, be good to each other, and watch more movies. Brian.